Welcome to Generation Travel Radio, where we share the stories of people from a diverse range of generations and backgrounds whose lives have been enriched academically, professionally, and personally by international experiences. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Generation Travel Radio. Kelly and I are so excited to welcome you all back because we've got a great episode and guest up for you today. Today, we have Elizabeth Raquel Garcia here, and we're so excited to have her because she is an entrepreneur starting out um, a new kind of organization company where she is DEI, Student Resource Specialist. We're thrilled to be able to hear about that experience and then also what led her on the journey to get there. So instead of starting out with a more of a intro to the guest. We're really going to allow you to listen to her story through our questions, this interview, and hopefully you can draw some conclusions for yourself and see how people get into this field of international education, where they come from, how diverse their backgrounds are, and how that shapes what they look like as professionals once they're in the field and learning what the field looks like as well. So welcome her to the show and let's jump into the first question. The history of you and your family, let's talk a bit about that. I know it's important to your story. Give us a glimpse into maybe what those years, formative years, have looked like for you. Sure. Thank you, Erin and Kelly, for having me today. I'm really excited to chat with you all some more. So a little bit about me and my family. I'm what people would call a third culture kid. I'm a multicultural Latina with origin in Mexico and Chile, but born to a mother who is from Bolivia. So it's like a kind of a mix there. And I have family all throughout Latin America, everywhere from Chile to Bolivia to Argentina to Mexico, and also in Canada and the US. And here I live in California, the people who are part of that family, the diasporic family, the one that's like spread all throughout the Americas, it's just me and my mom left now. So everyone is kind of just scattered throughout. So it's just us. And that has greatly impacted who I am. And I guess, I guess my worldview or understanding of the world around me and also lack of understanding about who I was when I was growing up. Um, Because my family scattered all throughout the Americas and because my mom is the only one in her family like in California, I grew up with the disconnect to my history, my culture, my heritage. I didn't really know who I was or where I came from. On my Chilean side, on my Mexican side of my family, I have my Mexican relatives here in the U.S. and in Mexico, and I grew up more with them. But on my maternal side, the Chilean side, there was a, a greater disconnect. I had no idea what that history was. Yeah, third culture kid and growing up, I had no idea that I was a third culture kid. I just kind of, I had no idea who I was. That's what kind of led me on the journey to wanting to find out because I grew up very confused and lost and oftentimes feeling very lonely and isolated, especially when I got to college. That's when I decided, hey, I need to really figure out who I am and where I come from. So I saw study abroad as that opportunity. Very interesting. So I have a quick follow-up question. Third cultural kids always get me, you know, intrigued. I worked first in intercultural training when I got out of college. And this was a concept we dealt with a lot because we did both the professionals who were moving abroad or coming to the U.S. And also we had the kids training. Some of them were third culture kids, some were not, but I then learned more about that topic. So when did you actually learn what a third culture kid was? And just give me a glimpse into that 
so we can see how that relates to your story as well. I think I actually learned what a third culture kid is, I think last year. I'm part of, um, I guess, a community or an online community of different travel bloggers that I'm friends with. And one of them is she specializes in third culture kids because she herself is a third culture kid. And she started posting about it a lot. And that's when I finally like found the... I guess the word or the label for what I am. So that was really interesting. And once I found this word or this label, I was able to understand a little bit more about my experiences and why they're so different from other people's. It makes me think a lot about, uh, or a little bit about this concept of identity. And, you know, this was a term that you just learned a year ago, but you're using it for yourself now. And someone who we all commonly know, Adon de La Paz, he recently said to me, and I know he's going to listen to this episode, so shout out. But he recently said to me, you know, our identities really change over time. How you identify today might not be how you identify five years from now. I'm curious actually about kind of how you, how you've kind of adapted or adopted that identity, at least in this current place and time. Is it something you really feel like, oh, like that fits me? Or is it just kind of more a definition of, okay, so this is what you might use in kind of common language, so to speak, where people are talking about these things. This is kind of like the term you would put. I'm just curious to know the, your relationship to that identifying term. Sure. So third culture kid, I feel it's it's like the former, what you had mentioned. I use it more as a label that people can understand because when I have to go ahead and explain, okay, yes, I'm a third culture kid. That means that, or for me, that means that I have my paternal grandparents from Mexico and my father was born in the U.S., my maternal grandparents from Chile, my mom was born in Bolivia, but she came to the U.S. by way of Canada. Having to explain all of that history can be very complex, so most of the time I'll just say, yes, I'm a third culture kid, and or I found like my little elevator pitch how to put myself in a phrase. I just say, I'm a Mexican and Chilean origin born to a mom who's from Bolivia. That's like the short and sweet version of it, but in between all of that is all of the history of how my grandmother and my mother came to this country, which was by way of many other countries. So yeah, that's that's why I use their culture kid. And we may be digging into a little bit more of that story today, which I think leads us perfectly to digging into that. When was the first time you went abroad? Where did you go? What were what were some of your expectations? But then what did you end up learning from that experience? So the first time I studied abroad was actually in 2016. I went to Brazil and I studied abroad in Rio. I would say I went there because I was enamored by Brazilian culture and Brazilian music. I didn't know what to expect out of my time there, but I was very surprised in so many different ways. And I'm very grateful for the experience. I just assumed that I would be doing what I signed up to be doing, which was cultural immersion and learning Portuguese. Um, But so much more happened than just that. In between going to the university and taking my Portuguese and, and culture classes to not being able to leave my apartment because I was so anxiety riddled, so much happened in between that process. On top of all of that, being inspired to go back to my countries of origin is what happened when I went to Brazil. So I went to Brazil with the idea that I was going to learn about a different culture, 
a culture different from mine, something that I had no idea about, a language I had no connection to. And while I was there, it really kind of started to hit me that maybe I should start with my own cultures first. If I don't know anything about me, my history, my family, my heritage, nothing, maybe that's where I should start. I would say what I got out of the experience in Brazil was the time and space to process all of that. And then finally, the inspiration to just go ahead and do it. I think everything happens in divine timing. And it's kind of funny because my last month in Brazil, my mom actually found out that she had a long lost sister in Santiago, Chile. And right then and there, I booked a ticket to to go to Chile for the first time all by myself to go meet my aunt. And I knew very little Spanish. Oh, I spoke very poor Spanish. I spoke that weird like in between Portuguese and Spanish. I spent a week there connecting with my long lost aunt and my family that I have in Santiago, Chile. That experience really taught me like, wow, you really need to get it together and go and learn Spanish and come back to Chile so that way you can really connect with your long lost family on a deeper level. That's kind of where my mission began with wanting to reconnect with my family and using study abroad as a tool to do that. After my experience visiting Chile while on my study abroad in Brazil is when I told myself, okay, here's the plan. You're going to go back to university. You're going to take all the Spanish classes. You're going to go to Mexico to practice Spanish and do a field research program. Then you're going to come back to Chile and finish your mission. So that's that's kind of how I got started. And so that you already kind of alluded to what your your plan became. You didn't have that going into college of thinking you were going to study abroad multiple times. Did you have an idea that you wanted to study abroad or how did that come to be the initial thought to study abroad? Well, honestly, I had no idea that I was going to study abroad when I went to college. I had no idea I was going to go to college growing up. I had no idea it was an opportunity for somebody like me. But back in high school, I had an English teacher who told me, if you go to college, you have to study abroad. It's amazing. She told me that she had gone to Italy and she had a great time. So in the back of my head, I was like, oh, okay, that sounds cool. Maybe one day I'll go to Brazil because I was obsessed with Brazil. But it wasn't something that I really wanted to do. or It wasn't something on my to-do list or something I had planned to pursue. What actually happened was I got to college and it was not what I imagined. I initially pursued going to a way to university and pursuing higher education as an escape from my home life. And I thought it would be a great opportunity to have, a, you know, a place to live, food to eat, classes to take, just my own space and my own time. But being there as a first gen low income student, putting myself through university, it was nothing what I imagined. So my first year in college actually was working three part time jobs while being a full-time student and I was facing food and financial insecurity. I was experiencing bullying by fellow peers, people who lived in my dorms who didn't like me because I worked a lot and just because I didn't fit in with them. And I just was dealing with a lot of anxiety and I, I just felt this need like I needed to leave the university. So I went to the university to get away from home that I decided like, I need to leave this university because it's really bad for me here. I just coincidentally walked into an EOP presentation on study abroad. So EOP at my university, at the University of California stands for Education Opportunities Program. And it's a program for first-gen low-income students, along with other students who fall into a certain category who need support. So I walked in on that presentation and they went through all the steps and all the information that we needed to know in order to study abroad. And I put myself to work. I checked off everything on my to-do list. I met with all of my advisors. I said, okay, I need to go. So how do I, how do I get there? And then once I learned that I wasn't allowed to work while I was abroad, 
that completely changed my mentality for everything. At first I was scared. Of, I told myself I had never not had a job. Now I'm going to not be working my three jobs and I'm going to have free time to just study and just be. That sounds amazing. So I took the opportunity and then I learned I can win all of these scholarships to make up the rest of the money. So that was really great. And because I was an EOP student, I actually received a special kind of scholarship that covered 90% of my expenses at the university already. And it applied to my study abroad programs. So I had a very unique opportunity and I told myself, not everybody has this chance, so I better take it. That's how you got there. Uh, that's kind of what led you there. You mentioned that you wanted to do some research in Mexico City and it is that is something that you did. So you went and you did some field research. What brought that that specific opportunity on? What was the but what was the research that you were doing as well? And I think we might want to throw in here too what your major was because you did study abroad a lot and unfortunately not all majors kind of accommodate for that. So I actually majored in anthropology and luckily for me, my university and UCEAP, University of California Education Abroad Program, they offered an anthropological field research program in Mexico. So I said, that's perfect for me. It was based in Mexico City, but conducted in a state of my choice. And I chose the state of Oaxaca. I went there with the intention of doing this field research program because I was an anthropology major and I wanted to see if doing research and going down the academic route was something that I wanted to pursue later on. And I wanted to practice my Spanish as well. So those were the two reasons why I went. And I chose Oaxaca because it's has a very vibrant, rebellious, and revolutionary culture, all things which I love. And I went there to study the impacts of immigration on women. So women who have either immigrated and or who have been left behind by their families or spouses who have immigrated. All women who have been impacted by by immigration, essentially. So it was really great. While I was there, I learned that no, research is not the route that I wanted to take. I really enjoyed spending the time that I did with the women that I was quote unquote researching. But for me, doing research on these people was not, it just, it didn't feel right. Spending time with them and getting to hear their stories and just go vivir together, just like spend time together. That's what I really enjoyed. Having to analyze their lives to extract research, it grossed me out. So I didn't like it. I didn't like that aspect of it. So it gave me the insight for me to understand that research is probably not my path. That's for me. But it gave me the opportunity to find that out early on rather than diving full into master's PhD program and all of that and further develop my Spanish, which has come a long way. I think it's great. That's what those experiential learning opportunities are all about is also trying to hone in, you know, what you want to be applying to your work and what you want to be doing on a day to day basis. I am curious to know, do you remember any of the findings that you had from that research? Yeah, doing the research part was very hard for me because I just enjoyed so much more just spending time with them and collecting their stories rather than doing all the data and all that stuff. But the results of my research or what I found more qualitative than quantitative was just that these women have been impacted by immigration in such a way that they had to completely transform themselves in the process of transforming themselves, they essentially, in my eyes, they essentially became super, super human, super mom, super people. They were able to transform 
I guess, their situation from being single mothers left in poverty, having to raise children on their own, to change makers and opportunity makers for their children. Some of the women that I worked with, they were able to go from, you know, being single moms in poverty to sending their children to the United States to go study at university or sending them to the best universities in all of Mexico. So that was really incredible to witness. That was my findings, essentially that these women are awesome and they've sacrificed their lives for their children to have a better future. Which is also probably a global trend we see, especially mothers, you know, going to the ends of the earth, quite literally, for their kids and doing things like that. But it's it's interesting to hear the experience you had as a learning experience, not only about the culture and the language, but then also about your professional journey and also academic, I guess, in a way where you wanted to go from there. So then you decided, okay, your next step, you wanted to get that Spanish done. You were able to do that, learn their stories. And next you wanted to follow the pursuit of going to Chile, Santiago, place I love too. And you wanted to get to know your family more and things like that. So let's hear a bit about that. How was beyond that week you had while living in Brazil actually going there for an extended time, getting to reconnect, um, and also connect with that culture on a more in-depth level beyond just your family that you got to meet. It was a very dynamic experience, very complex. Going to Chile, I studied there for a year, and it was a year, it was a roller coaster of a ride of a year. That's how it went. I mean, I dived right into learning Chilean history, particularly all about the Chilean dictatorship from which my family was indirectly impacted by, but it had a really big impact on me, my mental health, my feelings, all of those things, because I dived head into learning and researching all of that. So it was really hard to come to my country of origin to reconnect with my roots and my long lost family and kind of processing and understanding why I, I'm not from there, why my mom wasn't from there, and why my family scattered all throughout the continent because there was a dictatorship in place for 30 years. That was really hard to process. But being able to connect with my family and being able to reconnect with my culture was very special to me. Yeah, it was it was just a big roller coaster of an experience. I wasn't expecting to do all the things that I did there, such as actually becoming a family historian and logging all of my family history and data and actually being able to meet every single person that I did. I didn't go there with that expectation. I thought I was sure going to meet some family and um, reconnect with them, but I didn't know that it would turn into all that it did. But I'm happy that it that I had. Of course, those unexpected journeys are probably the best, especially when you're a planner where you had already been planning since the Brazil experience of, okay, now I have this goal and this mission. I'm curious too, you being this third culture kid, then going there, had you known much about the dictatorship? And then also either way, what were your feelings, emotions, or what was your attachment to the fact that you are kind of that American and America had a lot of impact on that dictatorship and and what occurred? Going in, I did, I learned about the dictatorship back when I was at my home university and I read a couple of books on it myself, learning about how the U.S. government helped back the Chilean dictatorship was really hard. And to know that I am this third culture kid who lives in the U.S. and who benefits from the violence that the U.S. government imposes on other countries all throughout the world for so long, including my country of origin, is really hard to grapple with, right? Because I'm living off of the fruits of violence back here in the U.S. 
uh, while my people suffer in my country of origin. So it's very complex. And being in Chile and experiencing that and being perceived that way by my fellow peers, my fellow Chilean peers was a little bit, it was interesting. But because I align with with a lot of the Chilean youth's values, that is pro-democracy, anti-dictatorship, I was able to fit in with them. And I didn't feel so alienated because I feel like we were still all in it together, even though they did see me as, as somebody who wasn't part of their community because I'm not from Chile. I mean, I fit in. I look very Chilean. But as soon as I open my mouth, they can immediately tell that I wasn't from there. And then I would have to explain like, Yes, my grandparents are from here, but my mom's from Bolivia, but I live in the U.S. and they're, yeah. So, um, but we were able to connect because a lot of Chilean youth themselves, they have family who's no longer in Chile because of the dictatorship as well. So I didn't feel so alone. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. There's also that dysphoria that has happened for people that even did get to remain themselves. So beyond that, and kind of just digging deeper into that Chilean experience, are there any stories from specifically with your family that you'd like to share or of your academics there that really stood out to you as being impactful or or something that has really motivated you now into what you're trying to do as a professional DEI specialist? Sure. I guess I will share briefly two two different sides to this. So on um, the academic professional side, I got to connect with my fellow peers at the university. I actually made a really great friend who is also a first-gen low-income student on scholarship at the university I went to. And I went to um, La Católica in Chile, which is like the most, I think it's one of the most expensive universities in the world, according to Google. (laughs) I think it's one of the most expensive universities in the world. And I met my very good friend who was on scholarship attending that university. It was weird being a first-gen low-income student turned international scholar because I went from being a very undermined and unsupported student back on my home campus, or I guess historically underserved student back on my home campus, to a very privileged, well-served student as an international student in Chile. From my experience, at least being a U.S. scholar abroad, we're definitely catered to. Right. So I feel that international students in the U.S. don't really get to experience the same privileges that students from the U.S. who go abroad do. We're very catered to by the professors, by the academic staff, by the study abroad staff and coordinators. They basically spoon feed us and everyone serves us on a silver platter. That's how it feels whenever I'm abroad as an international student coming from the U.S. So it's very different coming from a background as a first-gen low-income student in the U.S. But back to my friend, I was able to connect with her and really really talk about the impacts that Chilean students experience, especially her as a first-gen low-income student. I guess the amount of stress it is to be at the university, it's so much more intense than university in the U.S. I learned that a lot of students suffer from physical pain in their body from studying and from being in the university because of the amount of stress that they're under, because their parents are oftentimes paying so much money to have them there. And if they fail a university or if they fail their final exam and they don't get their diploma, it's a lot on the line. So um, they're sacrificing a lot. And my friend in particular, she would tell me about how, how she would suffer from stomach pains and inflammation in her body, issues with her thyroid and mental health concerns just from the amount of stress that she was under. The amount of stress that Chilean students are under is both the academic rigor and also the societal stress, uh, the socio-political stress of what's going on in the day-to-day, right?
right? So living in the aftermath of a dictatorship is a lot. Um, there's still a lot of protests happening. And then right after I finished my studies at the university, the revuelta of the dictatorship came back and the, the Chilean government made everybody's worst nightmares come true. And they sent the military and police on the people, particularly the youth and indigenous people living in that state of um, anxiety and stress as a student, as a low-income first-gen student for my friend, was so much more than I could even imagine or grapple with. I thought I had it hard in the U.S. as a first-gen low-income student, but being there really made me realize how privileged and lucky and, I guess, more well-served I am. That's the story about my friend um, and the university and more of the academic part and the reason why I want to continue doing the work that I do as a DEI student resource specialist to support historically underserved students is to make sure that they don't have to suffer in university, right? We don't want students feeling sick mentally, physically, or overwhelmed or to the point where they want to drop out of university. That's where I hope to come in. And as for a family story, I have so many, but I will tell you my favorite. So I had the opportunity to connect with family members far and wide all throughout Chile, everywhere from Santiago, Chile to Arica, Chile, which is on the border of Peru. I have family like even within Chile, they're all scattered um, all throughout the country. But the most special encounter I had was with a long lost tío I had and nobody had seen him for 50 years because in the 1970s, the year after the dictatorship began, my family experienced a rupture after a couple of deaths in the family. And this uncle, this tío of mine, his name is Lalo, my tío Lalo, he was only 13 years old, but he became an orphan and he became abandoned by my family. He essentially was kicked to the streets and he lived in the streets of Valparaíso and he found a way to make a living for himself by becoming a fisherman. So he became a fisherman and he sustained his living by going out on the boats fishing and also selling artisanal fish. And nobody had seen him in 50 years except for his sister who also lived with him on the streets but was later reconnected with some other family who took her in. What was really special about this was I had no intention, I had no idea who he was. I had no intention of, I guess, in the beginning of going out and looking for all of these different family members. But as I met one family member who introduced me to another, who introduced me to another, who introduced me to another, both in person and online, I met his son on Facebook. And his son and I, we met up in Valparaíso and he brought his dad. So he brought his, my tío Lalo and that was the first time we were able to meet. That was the first time that he was connected with somebody from his family in 50 years. So that was very special to me. And I guess my favorite memory from my time with my tío Lalo is that he actually took me to the Fisher's ports with him. I like stayed there from like four in the morning until he got back from the morning fish. And he took me back to his house that he built with his own hands on a small hill in Valparaíso. He took me there after we, um, after he finished fishing and after we went to the market to pick up some fresh produce. He took me to his small humble home with his family and he made some fried fish, some fresh salad, and he even made me fresh caviar. Fresh caviar, yes. And we were essentially in his home, which is a shack. If you can imagine what a shack looks like, it was like that. And there we were talking about 50 years of lost history to together, enjoying caviar and fried fish. So it was very, very special to me. I showed up 
with no intention of like logging all of my family history, I just came with a, a little pink notebook I bought from the 99 cent store and a couple of pens. And I just started asking questions and started writing everything down. And now this little cheap notebook from the 99 cent store that's completely destroyed at this point because I used it so much holds all of my family history. It's like my little sacred book. Definitely something to digitize. I relate to this in a very, not not the same way, because I'm not a third culture kid or anything like that. But I also had an experience while I was abroad being like the first person in my family to go connect my generation or my parents' generation with my family in Ireland. And so it reminds me of that experience. And that's why it just puts a smile on my face for everyone. You're just hearing the audio, but we're on video and just listening to this makes me happy. Also, I visited in late 2019 Santiago for work and to visit friends. And I actually witnessed and was far enough away, but still impacted by some of the protests and watching the locals, specifically students, you know, be intimidated or confronted by, you know, militarized police. And it was really eye-opening. I didn't have a ton of connection to Chile before that, but you immediately have this empathy for these people and knowing a bit of their history and to see this kind of process starting over again of something that would really, I think, intimidate a lot of people just thinking back to what had been and not wanting to see anything like that again. So for you to kind of point out some of these structures that for those that youth that then I was seeing involved in this, you know, generalizing that, but, you know, a little bit later, it, it gives me a better idea even of who they were and, and why they were out there and doing what they're doing beyond some of the other people I even know, knew who were involved themselves. So yeah, thank you for providing all of that background too. I think that's very important to note that while we have it good in the United States, we still do have students that have lots of different things that are happening to them that they need support. And I think our universities do try to be good with that, but nonetheless, there's still a lot more we can do for them. So you wanting to be a DEI specialist is a really great idea, I think, because of the need and because you have your own experiences with it and in a variety of contexts as well. So at the beginning, you talked about how part of being that third culture kid, so to speak, having a mother who was from one place, but had moved to another place and and then moved to yet another place that had an impact on your worldview. But then you had all of these experiences as an individual finding yourself um, within those experiences and really getting out there. So how did that next, this particular chapter of your life, how has that shaped your worldview today? I would say that my experience with going back to my countries of origin and studying abroad in general completely changed my worldview. Right at the beginning, I thought I was just kind of isolated and alone, and I had I, I had no place of belonging to really understanding that I do have a place of belonging. I have so many places of belonging. Every country I go to, I find a home with people who who welcome me with open arms. It really helped me understand that all of these people in the world around me and throughout the world, they are my neighbors, right? So in the beginning, I would, I used to think of them more as strangers, you know, and I would kind of just like hide and like isolate myself. But now I've, I've changed I understand now that everyone is my neighbor and everyone is part of this global community and we're all interconnected in some way or another. And I think what really has to do with that or what really helped me understand and get to that point was language acquisition. 
right? So before I only spoke English a couple of years ago, maybe like four years ago, I only spoke English. I understood Spanish, but responded in English. Now I speak English, Spanish, and Portuguese, but it's that language acquisition piece, which opened up my access to be able to really communicate and bridge gaps in connection with people all throughout the Americas, right? Without the language piece, I feel that I was scared to try to communicate and therefore would avoid people because I didn't want to look dumb. But now that I'm able to communicate with them, it's opened up a whole new world because I'm able to not only just communicate, but build a deeper connection with these individuals. And that's changed everything for me. This entire season that you're going to be a part of, we're actually focusing on the concept of global citizenship. And I think in one way or another, it's been come up in these conversations we had. And this is kind of a big question to throw. It's a little bit of a surprise, but do you have any thoughts on that concept of global citizenship? And just so you know, like we've got, we've got theories all over the map, so there's no wrong answer here, but I've heard you use the term before. So if you are comfortable, I'd love to hear uh, what your thoughts are on that, that idea. What is a global, global citizen? What does it mean? Sure. Well, I will put a disclaimer that I don't know the text version of what a global citizen means. But from my understanding is that a global citizen is somebody who considers themselves a citizen of the whole world and with all people as their neighbors and all people as their community. And no matter where we go or where we come from, we are responsible to support each other as people and to support the earth and protect it as well. So that's my notion of being a global citizen, that regardless of where we come from or where we go, we have a responsibility to our neighbors, to all of our neighbors, to be good people, and of course, to the earth to protect it. That's my notion. And I think that the concept of being a global citizen is oftentimes reserved for people who can travel freely. But I also want to remind people that immigrants are global citizens in nature because they're leaving the place that they're from. They're still always going to be a part of that community. And when they come to a new place, they're new members of this community and we need to treat them as the global citizens that they are, and we need to treat them as our neighbors. So I just wanted to throw that in there, my little two cents, because I feel that oftentimes people who are immigrants or who are immigrating are oftentimes ignored and excluded from the label of global citizens. I think that's such an important point. I think that there is definitely a concept out there of global global citizenship, which we've heard people, and I would, I'll at least put myself on the side of this criticism of when the idea of global citizenship is applied to people who, yeah, can move freely. When it's really, I think that the way you put it beautifully, you know, whatever we might want to call it, whether it's global citizenship or something else, that notion And I think that's what we want, like we want global citizenship to really mean is that we are all neighbors and part of this community, uh, this big global community, and it is part of our responsibility. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on that out of the blue. Now to kind of round things out, Elizabeth, how would you describe yourself to our audience and what is your personal mission? Ooh, okay. Hmm. Throw it in all the big questions. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. I really like this question. 
because I think I might have it figured out. So I'm excited to share with you all. I guess I would describe myself as a recent grad who was a first-gen low-income student churned four-time scholar abroad. That's what I'm calling myself. Now DEI student resource specialist on a mission to support historically underserved students, both in higher education and education abroad. That's who I am. And that's my mission. I want to support historically underserved students because of my lived experiences and because I know the benefits of gaining access to opportunities like higher education and education abroad can bring for all people, but in particular, historically underserved students. And I want to do this by creating digital tools to offer more access to information about resources and opportunities for them. And that kind of leads us into the last thing. And this is where you get to do that self-promo. So take your time. Let us know where can we find you nowadays doing this mission that you have. And I'm guessing there's some social media in there. Um, and maybe what kind of goals or future plans do you have that you're hoping or just streaming up right now to get going? These days to pursue my personal mission, I'm actually building my own business called Access Equitable Education Resources. I'm really excited. It's still running up the ground. These students will be able to access this type of digital content full of information and resources either via their universities, who I would like to work with, and or for free on platforms I will be building both on websites and then different social media platforms like YouTube and Instagram and of course TikTok. So I'm really excited. I'm still just getting started. So nothing is there yet, but it will be coming soon. And if people want to be a part of the journey and witness the growth as I'm building this business, you can go ahead and find me on LinkedIn. Uh, my name is Elizabeth Raquel Garcia, or you can find me on Instagram. Awesome. And we will throw those in the show notes as well. So definitely everyone check those show notes out if you want to go straight to her pages. Hopefully you can see what's out there as your company grows. Students that are listening to us down the road, <laughs> they'll be able to access it too. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm not sure if Kelly has any extra questions. I do. But yeah. Um, okay. Keep going. One more surprise question. <laughs> I figured I saw it on your face, Kelly. <laughs> yeah. I, it was lingering. You have so many amazing stories, Elizabeth, about your, your journeys. And we have only just scratched the surface today. I'm wondering if you are willing to share what they, you have any ideas or plans in the works for how you might share those stories um, at a later time. Do you have any aspirations to, to do that? Or are they maybe even going to keep somewhere safe for a while? Many people know this about me, but I'm trying to keep it, I guess, separate for, I guess, quote unquote, branding purposes. But I am also a writer. I'm an aspiring author. I do go by a pen name. I guess if you would like to check out my pen name work, my pen name is Alara Caceres, E-L-A-R-A Caceres. And I do plan to write a novel about my lived experiences and my family history. A more of a fictionalized memoir version of everything that I've learned by logging my family history and my lived experiences and going back to actually recover that information and reconnect with them. So that's my big aspiration is to write this novel. It means the world to me. It's my biggest, besides my personal mission, this is like my biggest passion. I really want to tell these stories because it's important to me that my history and my family's history is not forgotten or ignored because it's so important. 
And I do strongly believe that storytelling is a way to change the world. While I'm also very active in in using my voice against, I guess, political oppression and oppressions and injustices and going out to protests and all of that, I do think that my role in this life is also to share these stories, to help remind people and empower them to take action and also to inspire or influence the powers that be to not commit violence that separates families, whether that's political violence from the state which I think oftentimes, I think all categories of violence I'm thinking about falls under that category, whether it's militarized government hurting students, youth and protesters like how we see it in Chile, or if it's like in the US separating immigrant families, separating children from their mothers, right? I think that's my other big mission in life is to tell these stories to inspire and to influence this change in the world so that way we can say no more to this kind of violence. Thank you so much for telling us a little bit about that. I am so excited to read your book. Whenever it comes, you know, I'll, I'll be here. Um, I love a good read. So I'm looking forward to that. But in the meantime, you're going to be doing so much out there as you're as being a DEI specialist. And the world is lucky to have you in that role doing that good work with your experiences, your personal lived experiences and everything that you've been able to do uh, leading up to this point and beyond too, I'm sure. It doesn't stop here. So thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a wonderful conversation and we really appreciate you coming on to Generation Travel Radio. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Please give us a like or a rating on your favorite podcast platform. You can also join the conversation on our website listed on our anchor page or in the show notes. We hope that the stories you heard today have inspired you and helped you to think about what intercultural experiences you'll seek next. We are Generation Travel Radio. Keep thinking globally. Globally.